The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. I'm your host Ethan Gelson and this is episode 9. This week we have yet another exciting guest, Mr. Jim Shumway of Tate Towers. Jim, how you doing? Really good. Thank you for having me. Ah, thank you. So, uh, first question out of the barrel, who are you? Uh, well, I mean, you've kind of spoiled that already. Um, <laughs> my, my name is uh, Jim Shumway. Uh, currently employed by Tate Towers. Um, I am an author. Uh, I wrote a book called uh, Automated Performer Flying, the State of the Art, about that topic. Uh, I'm a pilot. I have my private pilot's license. Um, uh, other than that, um, I, I imagine we'll get into the rest of it as we go through the uh, the pod here. Absolutely. Um, so... I asked the question of the, my guests, how did you get into rigging? You and I actually know each other uh, from college, or we went to the same college. Uh, we have a lot of mutual friends. So why don't you, you mention how you got into the industry and then specifically into rigging and, and I would even say into your specialty of uh, flying performer effects. Yeah, I mean, so, so much of how I got into all the things I've ended up getting into in my life is um, uh, the pursuit of things that they don't seem to let everyone do. Um, and that, that uh, pursuit seems to scratch some sort of itch for me. Uh, so how I got into the industry um, started as, as a lot of us that certainly a lot of us that went to college for technical theater have the same story, like got into it young, you know, got into it in middle school um, and thought it was really cool to have the responsibility to be taking care of things backstage to help make the show happen. Um, and was a, a part of uh, some theater companies in, uh, in Westchester County, New York. One in particular was called Queen Mab's Theater Company, a little Shakespeare reference there. Um, and they did like original musicals. And these were like high school kids writing musicals. And I was like running around, you know, flipping dimmer switches and stuff. It was a good time. Uh, and continued that into high school. Um, and I, I remember vividly in high school, uh, turning to one of the seniors uh, in the drama club and saying like, how do you, how do you do this? If you want to keep doing this, like after high school, it had never occurred to me that this was a career. And uh, that was another Emersonian actually uh, named Megan Partica, uh, who had just gotten into Emerson and said like, Oh, you can go to college for this. And that was like a mind blowing thought to me that you could go to college for technical theater. It did never cross my mind. Um, and I, so, uh... Yeah. I was going to interrupt you when when I got into theater in high school, I think it was my junior year and maybe halfway through my senior year when we were starting to look at colleges. It was my mother who said, oh, what about Emerson? It's in Boston. And I went, where? Huh? I had never heard about it before. And again, yeah, same as you hadn't thought that there were programs that were dedicated to performing arts and and theater. Yeah, like what what a crazy thought that this thing you were just doing as an after school activity because it scratched an itch for you was like something you could continue you could go to higher education for. It's crazy. Crazy thought yeah. at the time. Um so then uh you know looked looked around shopped around for a college as we all do and and really landed on Emerson College in Boston was was the only place I wanted to go. 
um, and, uh, you know, had other options uh, lined up, but, uh, you know, applied early to Emerson, got in, and, and that was that. Ne- never did the, the rest of the application to the other places uh, and went to Emerson for uh, what at the time, and I think still is called uh, theater design technology uh, with an emphasis in technical direction. Uh, and that was super exciting. And then there, um, once there, the thing that they didn't let everybody do was rigging. Um, and really wanted to get more into that um, and did as much rigging as as was uh, plausible at Emerson in those days, which was really, you know, um, cheeseborrowing the things to the pipes at the Majestic in, uh, in downtown Boston. Um, and then was fortunate enough to end up one summer at Glimmerglass Opera, uh, thanks to another Emerson alum, a gentleman named Scott Levine, uh, who was the head rigger there at the time, which also very rare for like a summer stock program to have a rigging department. Right. Um, and Glimmerglass at the time had a four person rigging department, uh, which was pretty unique. And I uh, was fortunate enough to get in there as the intern one summer uh, when Scott Levine was the head. And then I spent another two summers there, uh, one as the staff rigger and one as the assistant head rigger. Um, and then uh, uh, coming out of college, uh, thought it would be really cool to work for Cirque du Soleil. Uh, that seemed like something they didn't let everybody do. Um, what, and what year did you graduate from Emerson? Uh, 2007. Okay. I think that's true. Yes. 2007. <laughs> well, you think it's true that you graduated or the year? The year, the year. I definitely yeah. graduated. I have the, I have the receipt. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah. So then, then it was, um, trying to get into Cirque. And at that time, uh, there were a lot of Cirque alums, uh, bouncing around various corners of the Cirque empire. Uh, and myself and, uh, uh, my, my best friend, Eric Gershman were trying to get in. And that was right at the time that Cirque was doing their, what, what they called then their first show in Macau. It would end up being their only show in Macau, but their first show in Macau. Uh, and they, they, uh, that, that's how we got in. We were willing to move to Macau on a moment's notice. Uh, and we both got jobs there and I was hired as a, as a rigger for Cirque. And I, I remember vividly getting the offer letter and being like, oh my God, I got to go read a book or something. Um, yeah, there, there, there is a, a, a large contingency of Emerson affiliated people who work or have worked for Cirque all over the globe now. Yeah, so it is. It, it's one of those things that uh, a lot of people talk about Emerson. One of its strengths is its network and that, you know, Emerson Emersonians really like to uh, network with each other and, and try to support each other. So, yes, the Emerson, the Emerson model. So you guys pack up and you head to China. Yeah. Um, so we, we pack up and we moved to, to Macau. Um, and they were that they were just starting, you know, the theater install was theoretically ending and the show creation was going to begin. Turned out the theater install had a few more months left in it. Uh, so we ended up helping with that and then creating the show that would become Zaya, uh, which was their first uh, and what would turn out to date to be their only production in Macau, permanent production in Macau. Uh, and we were there through the opening. Uh, and then I left shortly after the opening um, and had accepted a job at New York City Opera as uh, as the um, one of the associate technical directors. Uh, and then quite literally, as I was in the plane crossing the Pacific Ocean, uh, the housing crisis happened and New York City Opera no longer had that job available. Um, so I was out of work, but I had fortunately set up an interview with another Cirque show, uh, the, the U.S. Big Top Tour of Cusa. 
uh, and so that interview came through and, and I got that job mercifully. Uh, so then I was on the big top tours, uh, and I did Kuza for about two years. And then I jumped to Ovo, which was also in the U S on the big top tour. I was the assistant head rigger. Uh, and then I jumped to the creation of what would become Amaluna, the big top tour where I was the head rigger, uh, for the creation and the beginning of the tour. Uh, and then Scott Levine pops up in the story again, uh, who had started working at Tate and said, hey, you got to come down here and see this thing. They're looking for people that do performer flying. Uh, and really, I came down to uh, Lidditz, Pennsylvania to visit Tate, really, because I hadn't seen Scott or um, another Emerson alum, Kevin Ford, in a number of years. And they were both here. And I said, yeah, you know, what the hell? We'll go visit them. And uh, came down and got a tour of all these facilities and met all these amazing people. And, uh, uh, you know, very shortly after that, accepted a job. And I've been here ever since. That's awesome. Um, I, I haven't on the podcast spoken about it a lot, but, um, if you've, if you're a member of, or you follow or pay attention to the event and safety Alliance, quite often we will talk about our annual safety summit that happens at, uh, the Rock Lidditz campus. And if you haven't Googled Rock Lidditz, you should press pause on the podcast right now. Go check out Rock Lidditz. Um, I joke it is the the mecca of the rock and roll universe in the middle of a cow patty because <laughs> literally the first time I saw it, you're driving down a road, there's a farm and you see a big black box. It looks like um, mecca and that big black box is the studio, the rehearsal studio that they built and uh, associated with it is a bunch of industry companies like Tate, Atomic originally um atomic lighting was there that got spun off to beam that was acquired by four wall so four wall has an office close to the campus uh cm training center is there control freak I, i'm the ones that are popping in my mind but there's a whole bunch yeah, of different companies there claire yep obviously claire, claire and yeah. are the are the the founders of of the campus and it's a very interesting environment where you have competitors but quite often are working together towards a common goal and not necessarily because they were hired to work on that project together but because they recognize that they each have strengths so it's a very collaborative environment and then most recently they opened up at their own hotel so the the concept of the studio for those people who don't know is that a, a large show can pre-pro their show in the studio, which has a quarter of a billion pound grid payload capacity. So 250,000 pounds, um, million, sorry, I said billion, I was wrong. Um, but it's a roughly 90,000 square foot facility and you don't have to pay for an arena rental. So, you have this facility, you have all these companies on site. So you decide that that eight foot piece of trust needs to be a 10 footer, not a problem. Hey, I want to change these fixtures to a different type, not a problem. Hey, the automation isn't working. We need to go remachine this widget. You run across the parking lot to, you know, the, the shop and you can do that. So it's a very interesting place. Um, and I think for gearheads, it's hard to go there and not instantly fall in love. And be like, oh, I could spend my life here. And hey, guess what? So far you are. <laughs> no, it's true. And, and thank you very much for the kind words about the campus. It, it is 
uh, I completely agree that it's extremely collaborative and um, it's, it's easy to fall in love with the place when uh, you know, it's just, it's the dream, right? Those of us that have had to uh, put up shows for uh, rehearsals in either venues that house major sports teams, you know, remember like five months ago when sports teams were a thing, um, the uh, venues that house major sports teams. Uh, and so you have to move in and out over and over again for a basketball game or a hockey game, or you're putting it up in a venue that um, is is no longer used by a major sporting team, which is to say the venue is in a pretty horrible state of disrepair. Right. Um, you know, to be able to come to a custom made facility and have all the shops right there, you know, um, the, certainly the creatives of these productions are thrilled by the notion that they can change their mind or otherwise discover something that makes the show better and that it can be executed on without a four day truck drive in either direction to have whatever needs to get modified, you know? Right. So it's, it's really, um, it benefits everybody. It benefits the industry. It benefits the, the, t- the, the ticket holder, in my opinion, more than anybody, because the convenience of it all means we're all pushing the envelope harder than we would otherwise. You know, there's an interesting, uh, thing that I always mention to people about one of the benefits is your truck pack where normally on a tour you've pre-proed your show in an arena and then you got to load your trucks for the tour to start leaving and you have a finite amount of time to get those trucks loaded because of labor expenses of schedule of everything else and so it may take you a few stops of your tour to really refine that truck pack where at rock lit it's you get a little more time they actually only have a what three loading docks i believe off uh, of the, the studio I'm pretty i'm pretty sure it's four yeah but it's it, it's fairly limited but you have that opportunity to say hey let's get the the trailers here early let's figure out how this is going to pack i think they were saying was it taylor swift two years ago that went out and started as 93 ish trucks and six months later they had cut it down to 45 um just because oh, that sounds exaggerated in both directions. Um, but yes, over over the course of the tour, they absolutely um, found efficiencies in the pack. For right. Sure. Yeah. So anyway, that's our, our, our little tangent about Rock Lidditz. Yeah. Um, well, and increasingly what you're seeing at Rock Lidditz is when these when these shows come in, they'll also find a chance to do a fake loadout. Um, you know, so they'll they'll load out one day and then load back in. You know, right. none especially if like the pop star has to go do a, a TV spot and they have to go to New York and they're not going to be there for two days. You'll see these these tours doing a fake loadout and load in just to get one of those reps down. Right. And discover, right. Like, oh, man, we could cut a truck if we did it this way. Or, man, lighting, two needs to come in after sound instead of before. Yep. And, you know, you really you're seeing the dividends on the first real loadout. You, know, you can absolutely see the difference. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if for those of the, the listeners who haven't had the experience of being on tour yet, one of the common games, challenges that everyone does is, all right, the first loadout took four hours. The next loadout, we got a, every single loadout, you want to shave time off of that. Absolutely. Uh, the old school joke was, hey, the less time loading out, the more time we can spend at the bar. That's so um, this really kind of pushes that to the next level in, in allowing you to make efficiencies. You've been at Tate for the last seven years, roughly? Seven plus years. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. It's true. Yeah, it, it, time flies. Ooh. What's your current job title, I guess? And, and what are the what does it entail? What are the kind of projects that you come across your desk? Yeah, so um, my title these days is Senior Project Manager. 
Um, I also fill a, um, uh, at, at Tate, there are job titles and there are roles and sometimes those are linked and sometimes they're not. So, um, uh, I also fill a role as a subject matter expert in performer flying. So, um, the things that come across my desk, and this is not unique to me, to be clear, um, it's true of everyone that works at Tate. The things that come across my desk are, are unique and varied from day to day. Um, so in, in my job title as a senior project manager, um, I have a pod, as we call it, of project managers uh, that report to me, uh, but by no means does, but they go and they do their own projects, right? The, the reporting structure is really more of an org chart thing than it is a, uh, like a military chain of command kind of situation. Right. Um, so there are project managers and associate project managers whom I approve their timesheets and I approve their vacation requests. But again, like everyone's free to go play jazz the way they want to get a project done. Um, so as a senior project manager as well, I also manage some projects. The projects I manage tend to be performer flying in nature, um, but not always. Um, I also deal with a lot of the theme park clients uh, that we deal with um, because those uh, shows tend to be, those projects tend to be quite complex and quite long um, and, and uh, uh, require uh, sometimes a little bit of a different approach than uh, uh, some of our other project managers are, are accustomed to dealing with. Um, worth pointing out, it's not like I have some vast experience in that market. Um, the, all the experience I have has been from working at Tate. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, we somewhat segregate those projects from, from other projects. Um, that the general pool picks up. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then for, as a subject matter expert um, on performer flying, there are then times where like design, the design department will invite me into a meeting for a project I have nothing to do with just to see a design review and, and try to pick it apart. Um, one, of, one of my absolute favorite things about Tate is that we do exactly that. We'll have things, well, certainly design reviews and, and throughout other phases of a project where the point is for everyone to come in and pick it apart. And at no point is that considered a personal affront to the person presenting. It's, it's always viewed as a communal effort to make the product better or safer or more efficient or better in some way, better in all possible definitions. Um, so yeah, and ev every day at Tate is different. Like um, I, I am hard pressed to think of a single day in my career at Tate where the day played out the way I expected it to at the start of that day. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, you're the type of person who's always looking for a creative challenge and, 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 you know, Tate certainly gets opportunities where, um, there are a lot of challenges. They've, they've created a very strong brand name for, uh, the industry and what they do. And, um, you know, having the opportunity as, again, as you were mentioning that, um, you've been with them for seven years, but, because of the style or the type of projects that are coming to them, you've been exposed to some very cool things and, you know, things a lot of riggers don't get an experience with. So you're able to, to learn those components. Um, Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the challenges that show up at our front door uh, are unique and, and very often world firsts. Uh, and that's, that's an exciting place to be. You know, it's never a dull moment. Absolutely. To date, what has been your favorite project to work on? Wow. Whew. That's, that's a hard one. Um, um, favorite can be taken so many different ways. Um, 
you know, a lot of my most favorite projects, uh, first of all, possibly predate Tate, um, which maybe sounds counterintuitive because obviously most of the projects at Tate are, you know, banner headline names uh, uh, associated with them. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm most proud of uh, uh, <laughs> a, a um, crazy project that I did, not even a crazy project, just a really little project that I did for Cirque, for Amaluna, um, was, uh, you know, we had the wrong swivels. Un- unquestionably, we had the wrong swivels for um, the winches that were on Amaluna. And uh, they were chosen just be- for their weight, right? But other than that, they were these big, ugly, like crane swivels. And so when the performers would do, you know, on straps, would do like, you know, spin on their own axis and go up and down, um, they'd be spinning the rope, not the swivel. Uh, and I invested a lot of time and energy in finding the right swivel, which, you know, this this was new hotness at the time, but the Rock Exotica SS1, that was new at the time. Um, and and uh, we went with that and we, uh, this is also when 3D printers were pretty new, but we 3D printed prototypes of like inline weights that mated with the swivel just so and and cupped the rope and didn't damage it. And then we had it machined. Uh, and we made these beautiful little inline weights and, and everybody was happy. Like it's, it's little technical solutions like that, that are usually my favorite thing more than the, the, uh, you know, the Taylor Swift or the Beyonce or, or things like that. I'm extremely proud of those, of those efforts as well, you know, and, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people have seen some of that, some of that work, but, um, it's, it's often the, the small technical improvement are, are the things that I'm most proud of when I look back. Yeah, I think that's something that, again, people who are getting into the industry can look at that. I've mentioned before, we all have id, we all have ego. Uh, I don't think a lot of people get into the entertainment business with who lack ego. When you're young, you're like, I worked, you know, name this national act. I worked on that tour. And it's, it's the name value versus as you get more experience, you find out, as you mentioned, Sometimes it's not the big named or the high profile things. It's the smaller projects, but had a very unique challenge that stimulated your thought process to create a solution that you can be really proud of. Um, and as I mentioned before, that's the art, the art of salute of, of solving the challenge through engineering. Um, it's quite interesting. You mentioned uh, gear and rock exotica. One of the things I did a session a few years ago talking about how uh, how you determine working load limits and how uh, how you determine what a design factor is for a product. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the topics I often talk about with people is specifically between industrial lifting products and objects, carabiners, swivels, whatever that are used in performer flying. In that one of the challenges to date has been how those products are manufactured. Typically, industrial lifting products through standards have a specific design factor applied to them. So shackles, everyone brings up shackles that ASME B30 requires that any shackle over 150 ton capacity be proof tested to 125%. Mm-hmm. Um, and have a minimum design factor of five to one. Typically, climbing gear isn't proof tested. 
and they use a, a slightly different process in their design process for determining their working load limit. You, it, it, I don't know much about the Rock Exotica hardware specifically. Have you found that there are manufacturers like Rock Exotica that are changing their design process so that they're getting that precision to say, uh, that's a bad use of word, but the the standardization like you see in industrial lift, lifting for their products so that, um, man, the weeds are approaching real fast. I'm like, yeah, we could go into three Sigma design about products. All right. Sidebar. The short well, version is this. Usually climbing hardware is designed using what is called the three Sigma um, process, where basically you take your widget, you break it, you record that strength. You do that a whole bunch of times and you look at where they break the mean and you use a standard deviation of three places to below the mean to determine that is your minimum breaking strength. And so here's the specific phrase. This is the part you want to remember. You are 95% confident that 99.5% of the objects will break at or above that weight which means you are 5% unsure of anything and you're a half a percent sure or you're 95% sure that half a percent of the objects might break at less than that. So that's the gray area with climbing gear for aero performance. Are there manufacturers that are taking the industrial approach, which is they are proof testing their products before they leave so that they know that widget out the door is going to perform as they designed it. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. And, and to add to all those statistics you just threw out, let's also not forget that 70% of all statistics are made up on the spot. Um, I was going to go there and I couldn't yeah. remember the stat. I, yeah. I thought it was 73%. Um, well, I mean, it can be whatever number you want, but um, the uh, yeah, I mean, this, this is a very interesting question. And uh, uh, the answer is, of course, uh, and anyone who has sat through some of the webinars that we've done lately, the answer is, well, it depends. Um, you know, it varies wildly from manufacturer to manufacturer. So um, uh, much in the way I wrote the book, um, I went out of, the, out of my way while writing the book to not say, this is how you do it, right? Thou shalt. Um, what instead I tried to do while writing the book was present, enlighten the reader to the variables that they should arm themselves with, knowing that those are the variables that they need to go find out in their particular situation, right? So like the chapter on rope, for example, I make no recommendation about what rope you should use. I present you with all the, all the facts you should know about the rope you're going to use so that you can decide if that's the right rope for you for that application, right? There is no one size fits all. Um, certainly not in performer flying. So same thing with the hardware, right? Um, are various manufacturers behaving differently? 110%. Yeah. Um, and the, frankly, the fact that the industry is starting to try to regulate itself with things like the, the uh, ESTA performer flying standard and the other ones, although the performer flying standard is obviously the one I'm most immediately familiar with. Um, they are... Um, they are uh, starting to follow those those things, right? And especially since ANSI is adopting those ESTA standards, um, so that's helping. Uh, but the the crucial thing is to know know the answer to those questions that you've brought up about your hardware and your manufacturer. And not all manufacturers are very forthcoming with that because when you start asking those questions, 
um, they start to get concerned about what your plans are. They think you're trying to push the envelope beyond their published working load limit when in fact, and, and often we have to help bring manufacturers along to be more forthcoming with information with us by pointing out, no, 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 we want to apply a more stringent factor of safety to your product. Right. But we want to start from the braking strength. We don't want to start from the working load limit because that's how you end up with a shackle the size of your torso to fly a 90 pound person. Right. And that's, that, that's certainly one of the challenges that a lot of us who teach, and I know that you, you do instruction as well and you, you present on topics is that there's a design factor but as a user, that's not yours to play with. And part of that session I did with with uh, Jeff Reeder at LDI about working load limits was trying to establish that the five to one minimum requirement for shackles is based on a lot of information and history throughout the industry. And that was determined by industry experts creating an ANSI standard versus, you know, I always say that rigging is the the wild frontier of the entertainment business and performer flying is the redheaded stepchild of the rest of the rigging world where, <laughs> you know, for years people say, you're flying a person 10 to one. And my question to people, to just to get them to thinking about it is, why 10 to one? How do you know nine to one isn't good enough or it shouldn't be 11 to one? Well, it's, 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 what well, we, it's safer than five to one, you know, is it the spinal tap? Well, it goes to 11. Well, I mean, you know, and there, there are, um, uh, individual large corporations where as soon as ESTA came out and said 10 to one for, uh, uh, working load limit, uh, that they immediately said, okay, well, we're going to do 12 to one. Well, why? Well, cause it's higher than the standard and higher is better. Oh, okay. I mean, true. Everything's going to be bigger, but okay. That's, that's what you guys want to do. That's fine. Um, you know, why 10 to one, it's a very psychologically satisfying number. And, you know, we're flying people where we've got people's lives in our hands, right? It's not, um, uh, as, as I, as people who have heard me talk at, at, you know, LDI or new world rigging or USITT have heard me say before, um, all we're doing at the end of the day is telling stories. And those of us who have been doing this long enough can very proudly say most of those stories aren't even very good. You know, in in the name of telling the story is not a good enough reason for everyone involved to go home under their own power at the end of the night, right? That and, is, you know, that's that's the the uh, the Jim Digby. Everyone has a right to go home to their loved ones, and the event, uh, the show must go on safely. Um, yeah, you mentioned that in in one of the webinars. Is yeah, we're creating art. We are supporting artists in what they're doing. And it's entertainment. There's many different forms of entertainment. And quite honestly, if someone's not being entertained by what we're doing, they will find something else that does entertain them. You know, so in in especially in high profile events, there's a lot of money involved and that makes people feel the pressure because of schedules, because if we're late, it costs money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you're seeing a larger percentage of the people working in the industry focusing on safety and acknowledging you know what yes we can do this we can do it the right way but there are times where we have to push the pause button reevaluate redo our risk assessment and then apply what we know 
uh, based off of that risk assessment. And, and that's ultimately what you were getting to, which is the joke that we've all been using. It depends. Uh, you know, a lot of people, when they come in to take a reading class, they want black and white answers. Well, it's not black and white. There are certain things that certainly are black and white. If that trust falls, it will go crash. That's black and white. But can you use monofilament to rig something? It depends. What are you rigging? Yeah. I will yeah, use exactly. monofilament on a balloon drop all day long. But am I going to use it to fly a 10-pound weight? No. So it's a risk assessment and evaluation of that and then figuring out how to achieve the, the goal. Yeah, I mean, when, when I teach, uh, I often say, uh, if it is, I say, okay, guys, this is a 101 class. In a 101 class, we're going to give you a lot of thou shalt nots. It's easy to do thou shalt nots in a 101 class because we're not going to get into the vagaries, right? If if you, it's it's one of the chapters in Harry Donovan's book, right? I think it's chapter three, right? And it's like, if you read this chapter and you do everything in this chapter, you will, pre you will have prevented 99% of the dumb accidents that happen, right? It's a thou yeah. shalt not. Um, the, when you take a 201 or a 301 or a 401 class on that topic, the higher that number gets, the more the answer is going to be, well, it depends because it's situational, right? The, the monofilament, my, my dear friend and coworker, Alex Serrano, um, when we teach uh, intro to rigging together, uh, had, does a PSA, as he calls it, about the wire that is used to hold up drop ceiling in every office you've ever been to. If yep. you handed it to someone and said, can you hang something over people's heads with this? Their immediate response would be, of course not. No. But yes, you can in that circumstance, because there is, in fact, a standard that the wire is made to of a gauge of that wire, how many twists then, you need, yep. how often it is set. And in those circumstances, it's totally fine. So the, the more advanced you get on any topic and certainly rigging, the less there are black and whites. Right. It's, it's not a digital output at that point. It's an analog output. It's not one and zero. It's a range. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. When when I started teaching, I had taken classes with Harry and I would remember or I recalled people would ask him a question about something and he would fold his arms and lean back in the chair and he'd look up at the ceiling and he'd think about it. It might take 60 seconds and then he'd basically respond saying, yeah, I can't answer that. Now, he was doing a couple of things. He was thinking about can I give a real answer to that question? He, a lot of times, was thinking about liability. If I tell someone they can do this and something happens, am I, you know, going to be liable? Absolutely. Um, and that's one of the things that I said, you know what? I always want to be able to give an answer to someone. And I recognize very quickly that sometimes the answer may be, I don't know. We can find out. We can research. And, and that's where I developed the idea of, hey, not a single person knows everything about rigging. But for me personally, what I have is a network of really smart people that I get to to call and ask questions. So if someone asks an engineering question, I can call Jeff Reeder or any of his guys. If someone asks me a question about uh, performer flying, I have Jonathan Duell. I have you. I have Eric Rouse. If someone asks me a question about chain hoists, I have Brian Leister at CM or guys at Atlanta rigging or mountain, you know, you have these resources and you build them. And the key is learning when you don't know and that it's okay for you to ask questions of others. Because honestly, if you form good relationships, a lot of the times people are more than happy to answer questions because they get something out of it too. They're like, huh, oh, that's a good question. 
maybe they don't know. Maybe you guys figure out the solution together and everyone learns something. So yeah, I mean, you've, you've touched on two things that I feel very strongly about there. Um, the, the first one is uh, Rock Lidditz did a career day kind of thing for, um, I believe they were college students that were in, yeah, they were college students that were in college for technical uh, arts, not necessarily theater. You know, there were some people that were going to college for podcasts because that's a thing you can do now. Um, and I was on a panel and the question was from one of the kids, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were coming out of college? And my answer was, um, I don't know. I'll get back to you is a completely acceptable answer, right? Like yep. that is that is a crucial skill in life, number one, certainly in rigging, even more so in performer flying, right? You do not have to stand there and have all the answers in the moment. And it is not in any way a sign of weakness to say, I don't know, I'll get back to you uh, instead of coming up with some nonsense and, and spouting untruths, right? I don't want to say lies. Lies tends to, in my opinion, mean like it's intentional and untruth means you thought you were right and you were wrong. Um, so, right. So saying, I don't know, I'll get back to you. Totally acceptable. Um, and, uh, and, and the other one, uh, I think I said it on Eric Rouse and Andy Schmidt and Jonathan Duell's, um, uh, webinar, uh, a couple episodes ago is, um, that life is open book. You know, you don't have to memorize everything. You know, I, I've certainly, when I was in college, we all uh, used to uh, take pride that we had memorized the breaking strength of all seven by 19 wire rope and all the different size shackles. That's not important. That's cool. It's a nice party trick, but that's not important. What's important is that you know where to find the information, which has never been easier, by the way. We all walk around with mankind's collective uh, uh, information and intelligence in our pockets, number one. Um, and or who to call if you need some advice, right? McLean Snow, another good friend of mine that I work with here, says life is open book. You know, go go call somebody. You don't need the the answer doesn't have to come from you. You need to get the people around the table to help you out. So that the, both of those are excellent points. There may or may not be an Albert Einstein attributed quote that says that intelligence is the knowing of facts, but knowing where to find them. Oh, um, I like and, and, and it, it's just, it's the same thing that you said, just phrased differently that I, I used to, when I started teaching, I would have all this random information in my head and not that I'm the oldest person in the world, but I'm not a spring chicken. It's getting harder. And I keep putting more stuff in my brain. I keep putting more information about different stuff as I learn stuff. So it gets harder and, and Sometimes you make mistakes, you misquote things, you flip the numbers around and you say that you're 98% sure of 95% of something will happen, <laughs> you know, whatever the case may be. So it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, hey, you know what? I screwed up. You mentioned something that, uh, and we've talked about it in previous podcasts, the overselling yourself thing. Have you ever done any research or do you know the story about the Owen Hart incident in 1999 at the Kemp Arena? No. Pro wrestler. Well, Owen that, Hart. One, that one, that part I knew. But the yeah. <laughs> Owen Hart's pro wrestler in 1999, they had returned his storyline to what he actually initially came into the business in was the character was called the Blue Blazer. And they were repelling him or lowering him in as his entrance. And he had a blue cape and he wore a mask. Now, part of this was 
WCW, the competition at the time, had a character, Sting, who was coming in the same way. And so there was probably some one-upmanship going on because they were in a heated rivalry. And uh, this was a pay-per-view event, Kemp Arena. The plan was to lure him into the ring on a single line uh, for his entrance. The... And I'm purposely, you can read the police reports and you can find out the details. I'm purposely leaving names out because I don't think they're particularly important to the story. The company that they had been working for for a long time gave them a number. And the two issues were they they didn't really like the number. But two, the way that company insisted that they do the stunt is the term they were using at the time was to use a locking carabiner. And the problem was on camera, it was too big. The person who did the stunt claimed that they had, for WCW, flown Sting in dozens of times. They used a quick-release snap shackle, which typically you'd see as uh, what you'd use on a boat to raise your sail off of the halyard. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was load-rated, but it only took designed to take eight pounds to release it and open it. And their goal was he'd have a little string in his hand. He'd be able to quick release it and the rope would disappear and he'd run around the ring in his cape. Unfortunately, what happened is he goes over the railing of the catwalk. He's hanging there and he went to adjust his cape a little. And in that process, he pulled the release and 80 feet down. He actually hit the turnbuckle. Um, Owen, uh, you know, the people who know I worked in the wrestling business, I didn't know Owen, um, but a lot of people knew him. Uh, obviously, a lot of people knew him. Mentioned how nice and kind of a person was. And the story is, on his way down, he was screaming at the referee, look out, because he was going to land on him. Mm. Um, in the court hearings, or in the depositions, and in the trial, this rigor, who claimed he had this experience, it turns out, basically, he had interned. He had assisted setting up the hardware, but he had never actually performed the stunt of lowering the talent to the ring in WCW. He oversold himself and he took on a lot of responsibility. And, you know, it was settled out of court. So there's a lot of things in terms of who was actually liable, but those choices were made and someone lost their life. And, and, it is certainly an extreme story of what can go wrong, but that's the reality. When we're flying people, that is what we're talking about. We're talking about whether or not they finish the stunt safely or they don't finish it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously that story is from a long time ago and the concept of risk assessment, risk reduction was, I imagine, nowhere near the vernacular in the entertainment industry. I mean, we're still... We're still we're, we're only at the very beginning of such a phrase becoming normal, normalized in our industry. Um, but, you know, the, there's a, even in that condensed version of the story, um, there's any number of things that spring to mind that would have been caught in a risk assessment. Um, right. But to, to your immediate point about um, overrepresenting oneself, I mean, it's it's dangerous, you know, especially in rigging and, and even more so in performer flying. I uh, firmly abide by the policy, um, not just in what any individual can do, but what, like what we're, how we're going to deliver the effect, how fast something can go, how, how grandiose it'll be. I am firmly a firm believer in under promising and over delivering. Um, 
does that result in some harder conversations up front when you're saying, look, this is all it's going to do? Absolutely. But never, not once did someone get yelled at for the effect performing better than what you told them it would do. And it probably reduced your stress level quite a bit in terms of if, if you're underperforming, you're stressing out about that and, and dealing with that stress, which means you're not going to be thinking as clearly as you should be to get the performance to be better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in stacking the deck in my favor, right? We all are aware of the conditions we work in, in our industry, right? Not, not a, uh, you know, especially as opening night approaches, not a ton of sleep, not a ton of, um, uh, uh, time away from work, which is not the same thing as sleep and is equally as important. Um, you know, so uh, I, the last thing I want is to be up against, oh, my God, and the thing doesn't work. On top of that, I would like to just have to deal with the sleep deprivation and the lack of time away from the work uh, and know that we've got the gag in the bag. Right. And then when the creatives show up and you go, hey, by the way, uh, we can we can get all the way over the seats over there. They go, oh, my God, that's wonderful news. Thank you. You know, there's, there's never there's never yelling at that point, you know. Yeah. Um, but flip the script on that and have said you could get that far out over the seats and now not be able to. And there will be some yelling. Oh, yeah. Yep. And, and, and it's a small industry again, high value, but really it's a small industry. Your reputation is probably the most valuable asset you have. Um, the number of, I don't advertise heavily. I advertise on controlbooth.com because it's a, a good market for high school theater inspections, but you know, I don't advertise it. It's word of mouth. It's the reputation. People say, hey, this company, they do a good job. You call, you do them, and they do a good job. So that reputation is something that you have to maintain. And uh, in the manner in which you've described, certainly helps build the reputation. Yeah. I mean, when, when I talk to college kids and they say, like, you know, how do you, how do you, get, how do you get to work on all the big shows, whatever? Like, you know, and first of all, you don't have to work on the big shows to validate yourself. Let's start there. Like, be proud of your work, regardless of where it is. But the, um, the, uh, the answer I always give is, uh, it, it's a very flippant answer and it usually gets a good laugh line, but the, the answer is, um, it's, it's really easy. Just impress everyone you ever meet. Yeah, that that's it. Just, just show up to work, be ready to work, work hard, impress everyone you ever meet and the rest will work itself out. It's that simple. Now, of course, yeah. what I just said is extraordinarily difficult to impress everyone you ever meet, but like that's, that's the secret sauce. Just show up, be willing to learn, be interested in working, impress people, leave, leave a good impression. You'll go far. How far I cannot yeah. say, uh, in, in the words of our, uh, unfortunately departed friend Milo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, God rest his soul. I, I wish more people had an opportunity to to meet. We're we're talking about a dear friend of ours, Mile Leno, Leno, who uh, we I went to Emerson with. He then ended up working at Emerson and was heavily involved in helping a lot of years of students leave Emerson with a lot of good education and experience, myself included in that in that column. Yeah, and he unfortunately passed away a year ago from a heart attack in his mid forties. Yeah. Way too soon. But Milo had a, 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 he always had a smile, but he had just, 
you know, he had a great way of dealing with stress, which was just going to take a deep breath and think about the situation. And you know what your talents are. You know what you're good at. Believe in yourself, kind of focus on your strengths and, and you'll figure it out. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be learned. That's a great segue into my next question. Ooh. Who have some of your mentors been in the rigging oh, wow. industry? Wow. Um, and and you'll get the benefit of a discussion I had with Bill Sapsis in last week's episode uh, or two weeks ago because, you know, I'm recording these out of order. Um, <laughs> the Bill Sapsis episode, which was keep in mind that mentors don't necessarily have to be someone who is significantly older than you. They can be within your peer group. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, uh, first of all, I mean, I would cite Milo and, and, uh, the other two gentlemen who ran the majestic while I was at Emerson, uh, Greg Anderson and, uh, Rick Brenner. I mean, those guys, um, taught a lot of us how to be professionals, which is different than teaching us how to be technicians. Um, you know, I mean, those guys all, imparted a strong worth of work ethic on that, that generation of Emersonians, um, you know, and, and can't, can't thank those guys enough. Uh, and I see none of them often enough, needless to say. Um, so, I mean, those guys, um, really all of the head riggers I worked with at Cirque, um, uh, to varying degrees, um, you know, Eric Pelletier at Zaya and, uh, Remy Lemieux at, uh, Cusa. I mean, the, those guys were incredible. Um, a, a gentleman who was not a rigger, Scott Freeland, uh, who was uh, uh, the TD of Amaluna and who I had worked with uh, in other capacities on other Cirque shows. I mean, that guy, uh, you know, the way uh, I, that that guy taught me how to run a team. Uh, and that is, you know, the the rigging is ultimately a lot of a concrete skill. Performer flying has more soft skills in it, but there's still a lot of concrete, like know the facts, know how to do it. Um, the soft skills uh, are the hardest things to teach. And man, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be where I am without Scott Freeland. Um, you know, and, and Scott Levine as well, um, who get, who hired me for my first rigging job and, uh, uh, continues to be my boss today. He's the director of project management at Tate right now. Um, so that's, I mean, Scott's had a huge impact on my life and my career. Um, you know, and then frankly, actually, um, Bill Sapsis and, uh, Mark Ager, who, um, uh, put me in touch with my publisher. Uh, oh, so their publisher for my book, you know, um, wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten that done without those guys. So, um, Neil Mulligan at Yale, um, who invites me to speak there every year, you know, just, just tons of people, these, these, um, these characters you meet along the way that, that, uh, you know, uh, very few people you meet in your life will, uh, you know, your life, in my opinion, is kind of like an oil tanker in the, in the ocean. It doesn't make 90 degree turns. So these people that really affect your life, just, just make a, a one degree shift in the direction you're heading. But then 10 years later, all of a sudden you're pointing West instead of North, you know? And, um, right. man, you know, the, those people have had a huge professional impact on my life. Bridget Cox as well, who was, uh, a big part of my life at Glimmer Glass and, and throughout my career. Um, just, you know, and, and these, these are the people you can call when, when like the, that's my Rolodex when like, I don't know, those are the people I call. Right. And I, I imagine that's the answer for everybody is that the, the mentors are the people you call. It's it's also one of those interesting things that people try to pick one person. It's like, no, you, you can be influenced by a whole number of people and at different stages in your life. You know, you as again, these themes come up. It's never a straight line in your journey and you meet new people 
they affect you, you learn things, you change, you evolve. Uh, we hope that it is an improvement and then you apply that and you keep going. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, 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 very few people specifically in this day and age, right? With the gig economy and that people, you know, change careers. I, I, again, here's a 70% of statistics are made up on the spot. It, I can't remember the stat, but it's something like people will change careers, not jobs, careers, like three times in their life or eight times. It's something like that. You know, I think the odds of people having one mentor, you know, that, that mad men kind of model of like, I worked at You're the right. same ad agency my whole life. And my mentor was the guy who was my boss until he left. And then I became the boss. Like, that's just, that's not a reality anymore, you know? Nope. And uh, you you should have more than one mentor. You should be influenced both positively and negatively by a whole bunch of people, right? It's it's not, yeah. you can learn from somebody by going like, wow, I just learned how not to do that by watching that person. You know, that that is equal mentorship. It's not necessarily in a positive way, but that's mentorship. Showing someone how not to do something from your own failing, you know, that's important. There, there's, and I alluded to this in a, a previous podcast, there's an exercise called Think Wrong, which is basically uh, come up with a bunch of ideas that you know are wrong, but throw them out there. So if you're trying to create a, you know, we use this for the Event Safety Alliance Summit a few years ago, and we were throwing out ideas like, all right, our goal is how do we be more engaging with our presentations? So in the think wrong process, there was the idea of charge people $5 to use the bathroom. That way they won't want to get up from their tables to use the bathroom because they don't want to part with $5. <laughs> yeah. It is, yep, it's wrong. You would never do it, but that's not the point. The idea is start thinking outside of the box, think wrong, throw things in there, and then start pulling things out and say, okay, well, that's ludicrous, but... What's it, what does it really mean? Like, what, is, what are you trying to achieve with that statement? And yeah. then fine tuning and saying, okay, well, what we're trying to say is we want people in the seat. Well, how do we do that? And it can be kind, it's just a different perspective, um, which ties yeah. into the learning from negative experiences. Particularly in the creative arts, you, you need to be, uh, another great skill to develop is not being afraid to be wrong. Right. Because even if you, even if, you know, to that example, your, your story about charging people for the bathroom, like obviously that's not the right idea, but you saying that out loud in a group of people that are in your tribe, that we all, we're all rowing in the same direction. There's no question about that. And you have no fear of being ridiculed for saying it out loud. Obviously, we're not going to land on that idea, but that idea might spark the next person to have the idea. And that's the, yep. And, and I, in the creative process, I, I have a, a, a friend and a client of mine that we produce an annual show and he will say, all right, what do we want to do this year? And I will do the same thing. I'll throw out ludicrous ideas and then he'll edit it. He'll be like, yeah, we're not doing it outdoors. We're not doing fireworks. We're not doing this, mm -hmm. but maybe we could do this. Maybe it takes that. And it's really just, again, for me, it's a, Hey, you know, let's, let's, let's see what we can come up with just kind of throwing things out there and bouncing and riffing off of each other until it is, Hey, this is a, a, a solid idea and let's, let's develop that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a Harry Truman quote. Uh, and the quote is, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't care who gets the credit. Uh, yep. Uh, I, I've that used that is... quote quite a bit of time. I used it a lot recently uh, last year with some things about, uh, trying to push some initiatives forward, which is 
those of us who work in writing the ANSI standards in our industry are not doing it for the credit because there sure. is none. Yeah. Well, we're doing it because it needs to be done and we want people to be able to use the results to work more efficiently and safer. Um, but that that is a great quote. Yeah, which is, um, I mean, I know it because of Scott Freeland, who's one of the gentlemen I mentioned back in that mentor section. That was that was his uh, rally cry for the creation of Amaluna when he was the TD. And it's, yeah. it's stuck with me all this time because it's, it's just a great, it is, no, there is no greater truth really than that. So you've been, you've had the opportunity to work on a lot of interesting and exciting at times high profile projects. Can you tell any stories of a situation that you would say, um, what's the worst rigging horror story that you have? And what I say to people is we don't want to hear about fatalities or injuries necessarily. I mean, the yeah, idea yeah. is, is can you tell a story that had bad rigging that ended with a good solution? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the names, the names and dates will be changed to protect the innocent. Of course. Um, the, um, uh, a, a great example of, uh, exactly what we were talking about earlier about we all are aware of the conditions in our industry, right? That that there is there is a deadline for opening night and there's not a lot of sleep and that you know there's no time away from the work, which is also important. Um, is we were doing a 3D rig, performer flying 3D rig, and uh, one of the drop shivs, which is the shiv that is the last one. If if you're if you are the performer and the rope is going away from you, it's that first shiv before then the rope takes whatever routing it needs to to get to the winch. So the drop shiv um, had failed, and uh, it was it was fine. It had failed while we were flying a sandbag around, no drama. Um, but we didn't we didn't know why yet, and it was you know like two or three in the morning, and this was day three or four of that. You know everybody's tired. And uh, we said, all right, hey, quick, let's let's go change that out. Let's re-zero the rig and let's get out of here. You know, we'll pick it up in the morning. And, uh, you know, someone reached in the box of shivs and grabbed the next shiv and ran up there and changed the rope. And we were re-zeroing the rig. And we said, okay, it's, hey, that went, that went fast. Let's run it around the room one time with a sandbag because that's what you do. And we got about mm, three seconds into that flight. And then that, that, uh, the, the new shiv seized. And now we were very concerned. We said, what on earth just happened? You know, so we sent somebody up there and it turned out that uh, we had a uh, very good high end. Well, we, we knew this. We, we packed for war. So we brought, you know, the drop shivs were all very good, rated, serious, good performer flying shivs. And we had very similar looking shivs, particularly in the dark at three o'clock in the morning to tired people. Um, yep. we had very similar looking shivs that were just, you know, effectively clothesline shivs, right? I mean, they were made by a reputable manufacturer, but they were not designed to be the drop shiv. They were designed to be the idlers to get the rope, you know, back right. to the winch. Um, and that one had been put in as the drop shiv. Um, and unfortunately I've lost this shiv, but I used to have it. And it was this amazing piece of Technora Tech 12 that had sliced its way halfway through the shiv. Wow. Um, because that one was not, you know, robust. It was just a plastic kind of shiv. Um, so the heat of moving, you know, sincerely, like probably between three and 10 seconds, just boom, sawed right through it. Um, yep. You know, so that's, I think that's a, a really right in the alley of the kind of story you're looking for there where nobody got hurt because we did everything right. Right. You don't just put a person on the rig after you change it, you yep. put a sandbag on, you fly it around with the sandbag for that exact reason. But you know, that was another big wake up call where we went, okay, we're going to re-rig this. 
even though it's now four in the morning, we're going to re-rig this and then we're going to go away and everyone's going to sleep for 10 hours. And we're, we're going to deal with the, the fact that we're not going to be back here for 10 hours separate because we just dodged a bullet here. Um, you know, and that, that's always a good, um, you know, warning shot across the bow. You need, you need those things to happen to keep you honest. Uh, the good news is if you're doing everything else right, you have redundancies in place that protect you. In this case, it was the fact that we were flying a sandbag around, right? Um, so there was no danger to life and limb there. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing you need to do to protect yourself because, again, we're not dealing with people who even, even the best people in the industry, the smartest people we've got, sleep deprivation is still sleep deprivation, you know? Yeah. Related to horror stories, I asked this question what is your worst fear as a rigger besides, and I'll make it specific for you, dropping someone? Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I mean, most, most of my greatest fears revolve around, you know, injuries or fatalities, right? So, you know, I, I guess if, if I wanted to skirt the rules of your question, Ethan, I would say, um, you know, okay, well, you know, we over-tension a cable and it snaps and the cable comes up and hits someone instead of dropping them. You know what I mean? Something like that. Um, but to really answer your question, um, I, I think when we move beyond like injuring a person, which is obviously, you know, in the forefront of any good performer flying rigger's mind, um, I think the thing after that is, um, you know, ruining an opening night or ruining the live DVD shoot or ruining the, the one-off, you know, live television event, that, that kind of stuff, right? You, on, on those occasions, you are uh, relying on your team because none of this is a singular effort by any stretch. Um, you know, you got to sit there and you got to, you know, before the show comes on, you just got to sit there and kind of take a deep breath or meditate or, you know, do the woo-saw ears from bad boys, you know, whatever your thing is to calm down and center yourself and uh, convince yourself that you've done everything you possibly can, regardless of what happens next. Uh, you've done everything you possibly can to make this one-off event go off without a hitch. Um, so if we're taking injuries out, I think that's it. That's a great answer. What areas of the industry do you think need the greatest improvement? Oh, wow. Uh, and you can make it specific to performer flying or rigging as a whole? Yeah, so I, I think I've got two answers for that one. Um the first one would be very generic, which is um, I think our college theater programs desperately need to be updated. Um, I think uh, at, at my, which is not to say there are not some colleges that are doing so, but I think if you go to most colleges for theater, you are getting the same education that someone who went to college in the 70s is getting, which is to say we are preparing you to go out in the world and do the original Broadway production of Pippin, um, which while fundamental skills that everyone needs... I don't think it's any longer worth spending four years on that. I think we need to get through that in the first year or in some cases, even the first semester and move on to the ways in which the, um, the industry has advanced. Um, so that, I think that's an area that needs huge improvement across the board. Um, to be specific to rigging, um, I, I argue in the foreword of my book that um, you know a lot of the big corporations uh, and we just talked about this on on uh, Eric Rouse, uh, Andy Schmitz, and Jonathan Duell's webinar today. Um, of course, it won't be today when this airs, but you know, anyway. Um, but but you can find the recording of that on Entertainment Project Services Facebook page. Yes, episode the four. whole series, episode four, uh, is the one I'm referring to. Um, but we talked about that. Um, you know, a lot of the biggest corporations, uh, 
draw a line between rigging and automation because they hire riggers and they hire automation people. And so I'm not faulting the corporations for doing that. They need to do that. They need to have job descriptions and who does what. And the line is very often drawn at the riggers take care of the cable as soon as it comes, or the rope, the lifting media, as soon as it comes off the winch and the automation staff handles from the winch back. Um, and I think that that is very unproductive. And I argue in the foreword of my book that uh, we should be uh, combining those. There, there's, there needs to be a huge overlap in the Venn diagram between automation and rigging. We need, what the industry desperately needs is more automation riggers, which is not to say that there's not a slice on either side of that Venn diagram where we have really deep divey automation people and we have really deep divey rigging people, of course, right? But I think that right now we've got a very small overlap in the middle of people who could really call themselves automation riggers. And we have a huge pile of people that only call themselves automation and only call themselves rigging. And we need to, we need to flip that script. We need the right. people who only call themselves automation or rigging to be tiny little slivers of a waxing crescent moon, not the bulk of the Venn diagram. Right. And you, you don't have to be an expert in both sides, but a working understanding of everything you're dealing with can help you be a better part of the team. And I talked about in other episodes, you know, as a set designer, if if you've taken lighting design, you can understand how to communicate with a lighting designer about gel color choices, that what the lighting does is going to change your set and what you do with your set might change the lighting, et cetera, et cetera. So a, a better understanding of a rigor about what automation is doing in bridging that gap is going to get, as he's mentioned earlier, the better result of a overperformed or overperforming uh, effect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and vice versa. You know, we, we also need automation people who understand the rigging, right? right? Yeah. Um, what, you know, ones and zeros are great and being able to see the matrix is great, but you need to understand what's going on at the, at the other end of the line, right? You need to, as the person hitting the go button, you need to be aware of what the feeling is of hanging on to that thing with someone else hitting the go button. Yeah. I, you guys mentioned uh, in the webinar that, uh, you know, not allowing a talent to do a stunt without you doing it first. Um, yeah. Being yeah. able to experience it so you can properly articulate to them, hey, by the way, at this really big crescendo moment, you're going to feel this. And or for them to say, I'm feeling this and for you to be able to say, OK, I understand what that is or what it means and being able to use that information effectively. A hundred percent. What is a widget that you are enamored with right now? What A tool, a product, something oh, in the industry that you're just like, this is the bee's knees. Um, well, um, <laughs> in, in the COVID era, um, uh, we have just developed a thing at Tate called the bar block, uh, which I'm pretty stoked about. Um, and I think most of your listenership will be as well, because I imagine we all are big fans of bars. I certainly am. Uh, and in the post, in the immediate post COVID world, it seems that the rules will be that, uh, restaurant owners will only be able to sit people at their bar six feet apart. And the finances of a restaurant means that that will kill a lot of restaurants. Yes. Uh, so we developed this thing called the bar block, which is a, uh, uh, you know, it, it falls into the sneeze guard category of, of yep. stuff. 
Um, but so many products in that market segment are, you know, made overseas and made poorly and chintzy. And they're also designed to be like bolted to the countertop, which doesn't work for a bar, right? Because like if you and me go into the bar and we're not socially distancing from each other, then what? We got to sit with a barrier between us because it's bolted to the bar? Like that's ridiculous. So we developed this thing that's readily movable and it's really sleek and nice. So anyway, it's called the Bar Block. You can go to barblocks.com and buy it if you're interested, if you own a restaurant. Um, oh, so that, oh. that's a little tape plug there. But, I'll throw uh, the link up on the uh, the show notes for that too. Oh, thank you, appreciate that. But um, the piece the piece of gear that I love the most that I like to pull out to to um, uh, impress people when when they didn't know that it exists, and it's an old piece of gear. It's been around for a long time. It's called the Kong Frog. So K O N G F R O G, the Kong Frog, um, and it is a connector. Um, made of aluminum. I don't think they make a steel one, but it is an, a, a, a hunk of aluminum and it has a very similar rating to a, a rock climbing carabiner. You know, I think it's like 23 kilonewtons. Don't quote me on that though, everybody like look it up. Um, and it is just a totally different way to think about a piece of hardware that uh, meets the requirements of, among other things, uh, ESTA E1.43-2016, which is the performer flying standard, which means the, the uh, connector takes two independent actions to open it. So in most cases, we think about a carabiner, you have to twist the gate and then you have to hold open the gate, right? Those are right. two independent actions. This thing um, is, is a nifty little piece of kit. So much like a quick release clip on a performer flying harness like Climbing Sutra, um, it has two dog ears, both of which you have to depress to get it to disengage. Okay, well, that's not necessarily revolutionary. The really cool part, and this is where it's great specifically for some acrobatic stuff, is when you open it, the the jaws cam open. And it, now you kind of really have to be looking at a picture of the thing, but there it has a U-channel where two uh, teeth cross and hold it closed when it's engaged. So when you open it, those two teeth swing open, uh, exposing the U, and they cam open. Now, they cam open, and in the middle of the U, there's another shape that will throw the teeth closed when something interacts with those that extra little dog. So what this means is effectively, if you have a acrobat or anybody who needs to go make a connection in the dark, you as the technician can cam this thing open. They can go take it out there and just jam it on an eye, a ring or whatever, and it's gonna lock itself. And it's just, it's this wonderful little piece of kit. It solves so many problems. It works the same in your right hand and your left hand, unlike far too many carabiners. Um, so it's just, it's a great piece of kit. I strongly recommend people playing with it, uh, you know, as long as it passes your risk assessment for whatever you're doing with it. Yeah, again, I, I just Googled it. it. It looks pretty cool and I'll throw a link up to for that. Yeah, it's just um, such a different way to, to solve that problem, right? It's not a, a variant of a carabiner. It's a totally different shape. Um, and that's that's great. Yeah. I actually don't know the answer to this question, so I'm kind of curious. Are you ETCP certified? I am. I'm uh, certified in theater and arena, and I'm a recognized trainer. Excellent. Do you think at some point there should be an ETCP certification for performer flying? Oh man. Um, you know, uh, uh, Bill Sapsis and I have uh, had this discussion many times, um, as I'm sure Bill has with many people. I don't mean to imply that our conversation was unique. Um, the, the challenge unfortunately is, is in economics, um, which is just, would there be enough people to take the test, 
to justify the cost of creating the test and, and administrating the test? And it's a very good question. Um, I personally, you know, I, I'm for it, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, I respect the, the case that the economics may not be there. Um, a, again, as I, as I argue in the foreword of my book, I think it would be more valuable to have an automated rigging certification uh, more than a performer flying certification. Right. That's, a, that's an interesting perspective on it. I hadn't thought about that as I was coming up with that question. It, it yeah, that, that, that would be an interesting way of encompassing those uh, skill sets, but in a broader uh, market to say that allowed more people to yeah. be interested in taking the certification. Well, it, exactly. And that, that's kind of where my head's at is that automated rigging and and really we could just call it you know automated machinery right but automated rigging in particular um the fundamentals there are most of the fundamentals you need to know about performer flying if you certify somebody in automated rigging a, you're, you're covering a lot of the bases for performer flying now this is the part where jonathan duell rightfully would say but what about manual performer flying and he's totally right um you know so that that would not necessarily help you with the manual performer flying, but uh, uh, there is a, in the Venn diagram of manual versus automated performer flying, there is a colossal amount of overlap. Um, so I, I argue that if, if there were an automated rigging one, I think more people would take it, which could possibly make the economics survivable. Um, and then really the only thing you're leaving out is the soft skills of performer flying, which is nothing you're ever going to be able to certify anybody in anyway. So there's that. Right. Absolutely. So I pose this question to people who are ETCB certified in an effort to expose listeners to the different opportunities for renewal credits. What do you do for renewal credits? Now, folks like yourself and, and other educators, we tend to get a lot of credits from teaching other people and being involved in things. But are there any courses or things that you've done recently, especially with the pandemic where everyone's doing online education? that uh, you think are a good resource for people in, in their quest for knowledge? Um, yeah, I mean, I would encourage people to uh, not limit the credits thereafter uh, to just rigging. You know, in a, a big theme of our conversation today has been, you know, automated rigging, right? Automated rigging. So, you know, take, take some automation classes. I, I know Tate has recently put a free online class that I do believe is good for ETCP credits, um, although someone should fact check me on that. Um, but it's a free uh, training uh, online for our new uh, automation platform, IQ, right? So like, I mean, assuming I'm right about the ETCP credits, boom, there's a couple credits right there. And now you're, even if you don't understand it, even if it's not a muscle, you're going to get to flex because you're not going to sit in front of a console and operate IQ, you know, just, just listening to it, listening to the cadence of the class, you're going to pick up some new nouns and some new verbs, you know, and that, that's a big part of it is the vocabulary around these things. So there's that, um, you know, definitely always be looking at everybody's Facebook pages for things like that webinar that Eric Rouse set up that uh, Andy Schmitz and Jonathan Duell were a part of, and that I was fortunate enough to be invited to participate in a couple of times. Um, you know, that was through uh, EPS. Um, I'm sure FOI is doing stuff, although I don't know that for a fact. So, you know, in, in the age of COVID, like it's all about webinars. Um, other than that, you know, I mean, the best way to not only gain points, but to gain experience is to work, you know, get get out there and work. You know, uh, Ethan, you're, you're absolutely right. A lot, a lot of us get our credits from teaching. 
but I mean, I'm pretty confident I clear the hours requirement just from the hours I work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things to keep in mind when you renew is you, you, you need 40 points and you can only, you max out at 30 points in work experience. So you have to do 10 in education, um, which is done on purpose, but yeah, I, I at one point you stop tracking your hours because you just know that in five years you've done so much of, of everything. And that's a nice freeing thing because you're like, Oh, did I do enough training hours? You'd be like, I, I, I know I did them. You know, it, Eric's thing uh, has been two points for every session. So if you wash all four of them and you get eight points, you'll need two more points, you know, find another webinar and watch it for two points. Well, exactly. Right. And, and that's a resource where much like the IQ training, like that's, that's just evergreen. Right. I mean, I, maybe they'll take that down off their page someday, but like, that's just there now. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can watch like, yes, it's COVID and we're all stuck at home and now's a great time to watch it. But like, if you don't have time right now, because you're blessed to be working, you know, Hey, awesome. But like when your renewal comes up in six months or two years, go back to that Facebook page, bust out eight points real quick, you know? Yep. Absolutely. It seems, I think most people listening, especially younger people, would say that you uh, working at Tate and in your position are probably in your dream job already. But I'll ask the question anyway, what's your dream job as a rigger? And let's just, you know, don't worry about any fallout if someone at work says, but but we thought you were so happy here. <laughs> is, is, is there a, a dream job and it, maybe it's not involved in rigging? Um, I, I will, I will answer that question slightly differently first before we get to not in rigging. Um, I, I will tell you the two things that are on my bucket list that I've not yet gotten to do. Um, I, I, I have not yet gotten to do a Super Bowl halftime show and I have not yet gotten to do an Olympics opening ceremony. Those, those are the, the two things left on my professional bucket list. Um, so the, those are the two experiences I'm, I'm hunting. Damn. Hunting. That's a, those are fine answers. That, yeah. that that's good got my sniper rifle out to, to check those last two boxes, but uh, we're still, we're still chasing those. Um, so what's the dream job, man? That's a good question. I mean, you know, I, I think, I think for most people uh, uh, the dream job is, uh, you know, to be independently wealthy and get to only work on the projects that particularly tickle your fancy. You know right. what I mean? Um, I think, I think my dream job would be to, to do a lot more of everything that I've done. Um, but to do it just when I really want to, you know, I would love to fly more um, uh, as I, I have my private pilot's license. I would love to fly more. I would love to write another book. Um, I would love to uh, do more projects that particularly excite me, which, you know, most of the projects I work on, I end up uh, getting excited about. You have to, to put the, um, to put the amount of yourself into these projects that is required for the result that you expect of yourself. You have to end up liking the projects. Um, but you know, like, like I said, right. I, I would, I would love to be in a position where I could like not work for a year and just do the next Olympics opening ceremony, let's say, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a, a good one. Um, all right. I think I'm getting to the, near the end of the questions I have for you, I would pose, do you, do you have any questions, anything you want to talk about that I haven't asked about? No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, as as we've alluded to a couple of times, I already did a two hour webinar today. So I'm I'm uh, uh, I feel I feel uh, I've uh, I've given I've given of myself to the world today. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, I may or may not have shot a text to uh, 
to Eric when he was saying, hey, you know, he was reminding you of the amount of time before they they wanted to get to the rescue topic. And I sent Eric a quick text. I'm like, hey, I'm recording a podcast with uh, with Jim later today. So, you know, tire him out. We'll be good. <laughs> um, yeah, um, no, I, think, I think we covered everything I wanted to talk about. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, one more time, uh, the title of my book is Automated Performer Flying the state of the art and it's available wherever books are sold. And I would be honored if uh, you all would buy a copy and then please do get in contact with me and tell me what you thought of it. Yeah, absolutely. Feedback is important. I say it when I teach, I I ask for it on the podcasts. Uh, The only way we can continue to improve is, is people give us feedback about what they like, what they don't like. Don't worry. A lot of us at this point in our careers have developed a a thick skin. So hopefully we can stay focused on, okay, what you don't like, it's not a personal attack. It's a, hey, this is, you know, doesn't float my boat. Maybe it does for others, but this is what I would enjoy more. So that feedback's important. No, I I welcome uh, criticism, constructive or otherwise, to borrow uh, a turn of phrase from my dear friend, Casey Roach. Uh, I'm I'm not afraid of what you're going to say to me. I've been called worse by better. Yep. Damn straight. (laughs) <laughs> All right. So the last question, this is this surprisingly has become the most difficult question I've asked the guests. Oh, wow. What is your best or worst rigor joke? Oh, man. Um, well, my my favorite uh, rigor joke is something that uh, we, we've actually <laughs> myself and Alex Serrano and Ben Gasper, who are two fellow, well, two friends, first and foremost, and two fellow taters, we, we own a uh, vending machine uh, in Rock Lidditz that sells uh, various sundries to roadies when they're stuck in Rock Lidditz. Um, and we made a bumper sticker that says, I'm a great rigger, just ask me. So the one that has come up quite often has been, how can you tell when there's a rigger at your party? They'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah, um, that that's been a very popular one. Um, the the other the other classic rigor joke that I'm sure, well, I hope Bill said it because I'm pretty sure I got it from Bill. Is uh, um, what's the difference between God and a rigor? God doesn't tell you that he's God. Yep. The uh, another variation of that is uh, what's the difference between God and a rigor? God doesn't go around uh, telling people he's a rigor. Oh, I love it. That's that's a better. That's better. That's better. Yeah, I don't know why I I have a collection of jokes that I've stored over the years. So um, when I ask the question, people are like, I, I don't have one. I'll I'll pull one of mine out. But um, it's it's great. It's it's awesome. It's, uh, listeners have certainly learned that I am not afraid of self deprecating humor. Um, oh, you so, can't be. Yeah. Industry. yeah it, Again, as we said, it's entertainment. You have to be having fun. And and here's something, you know, we'll finish with this. You mentioned uh, people having a career or having multiple careers in their life. I always describe to friends that the difference for me between a job and a career is a job may may be something that I do to earn a living to to pay for my life. A career is something that I would do even if I wasn't earning money. Um, Yeah. Having passion for what you're doing is a very important thing because no amount of money is going to make up for anything if you're dissatisfied with what you're doing for work. Um, And I I say that as a person who spent, as you said, 
a very long time with one company for many years and was very, very happy. And when I became unhappy, I, I changed it. And that was one of the best things that I've done in my life is to, to hold on to being happy with what you're doing. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the, way, the way I like to put that to people is, uh, and this is a little morbid, but it's a, it's a, it's meant to be, um, uh, you know, motivational is let's be very clear about something. If you died today, your job would be posted online before your obituary behave accordingly. Yeah. It, you know, <laughs> I was going to say earlier, our jealousy sometimes needs to end because there's plenty of work for everyone. You know, just, just because so-and-so is working on XYZ show this week doesn't mean that you won't be working on a bigger or different or whatever show next week. There's lots of opportunities yeah. for people. Um, just be focused on yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Be proud of your work. Exactly. And take pride in your work. Absolutely. Well, Jim, thank you very much for spending time with me uh, today recording this. It was certainly fun for me to to talk with you because, as I mentioned in the beginning, we know each other, but we haven't worked together a lot. Um, so learning more about you has been very uh, entertaining and, and interesting. <laughs> so I, uh, I appreciate it. I hope the listeners uh, continue to learn some great stuff about performer flying from you. Um, and I, I'll say you have any final comments. No, I mean that. Thank you for having me, and I, I hope everybody uh, enjoyed listening. And uh, you know, my, I'm I'm always available if people need somebody to bounce ideas, bad or good or otherwise, off of. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. Shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.